Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History. This is Peter Christian Agner, your host. Today, we're speaking with Daniel Prosterman about his book, Defining Democracy, Electoral Reform and the Struggle for Power in New York City. Dan, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Peter. I appreciate it. I appreciate you coming on. Why don't you start us off telling us about yourself and how you got to the project? Sure. Uh, I'm Dan Prosterman. I'm an assistant professor of history at Salem College, a a women's college in uh, Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Uh, This project started way back in my uh, doctoral studies uh, at New York University. Um, And to be honest, if I can date myself a little bit, uh, I became interested in this work uh, around the time of the 2000 presidential election, um, when there were a lot of questions about uh, possible third-party runs by folks like Ralph Nader, uh, Pat Buchanan, and the like, uh, and uh, while, while no one really ever gave uh, uh, third parties much of a chance in the 2000 election, as you might remember, there were some questions about what kind of influence folks like Pat Buchanan and Ralph Nader might have had uh, over the ultimate outcome of that election. So I was interested in the question of uh, the influence of third-party uh, uh, politicians uh, in uh, our traditional two-party system. Uh, and that brought me to this uh, uh, sort of uh, moment in time in New York City political history uh, when for about 10 years we have a system known um, in New York City as proportional representation, uh, known elsewhere throughout the world as the single transferable vote, or STV, where in New York City council elections, uh, New Yorkers were essentially able to rank candidates on their ballot. Uh, They were able to uh, basically give their own preferences for where their vote went in terms of their city council uh, choices. And if their first choice wasn't elected, uh, they were able to offer a second choice or a third choice or a fourth choice. Uh, And for this 10-year period, uh, what we see is that New Yorkers were quite interested uh, and engaged with the electoral process for uh, the city council, uh, which is something that historically New Yorkers really hadn't been that engaged in, at least not to the extent that they were during this 10-year period. Uh, And what happened when they were given the opportunity uh, to use the the proportional representation system is that we see uh, an explosion in the diversity of people who are elected to the city council. Uh, whereas before, you really had exclusively Democrats and Republicans, uh, for the most part, that are elected to the council, with Democrats uh, holding almost uh, uh, complete control over what was before the Board of Aldermen. Uh, after PR is instituted in the 1930s, you, you then have uh, the American Labor Party, uh, you have independent Democrats, independent Republicans, people who aren't affiliated with uh, the bosses of Tammany Hall, uh, the traditional leaders of the Republican Party, they're able to gain elective office in New York City for the first time. Uh, Pretty soon thereafter, you have uh, Communist Party members who are gaining elective office in New York City for the first time ever. Uh, Perhaps more importantly, you also have women who are able to to win office in New York City uh, in greater numbers than had ever happened before. The first African-Americans are able to win council seats for the first time ever. And this all happens because New Yorkers are able to participate in the electoral process in a fundamentally different way uh, that that runs contrary to the traditional two-party system. And and I found this this 10-year uh, period from the mid-1930s to roughly the mid-1940s as a fascinating glimpse into a sort of alternate history of a democracy in the United States, sort of what would happen if uh, uh, we didn't have a, a sort of two-party system that runs lockstep with Democrats running against Republicans uh, in most of our elections. And in New York during this period, we have a dramatically different vision of democracy. Right. I mean, uh, America's where third parties go to die historically. Right. Um, but 
you you make uh, you make the note at some point. There, there are structural reasons for that, right? And the and the two parties conspire to uh, um, to keep that system going. And so this really is a sort of remarkable period, and and um, it, it's a very notable period in New York City history for a number of reasons. But you know, this is sort of behind some of that, it seems. Um, uh, and it's uh, not unique. There's a, there's other experiments like this going around around the country. So it's a, it's a very interesting uh, period to, uh, uh, to say the least. Um, you note that the logistics of PR as practiced in New York were messy, to say the least, right? That's absolutely right. And uh, reformers had been uh, trying to bring PR to New York City for a long time. This wasn't just something that was drawn up in uh, 1933 and then proposed in 1936 and then and then brought in a whole cloth. Instead, New Yorkers had developed uh this system way back in the 19th century. It was it was brought across the Atlantic and had been experimented with in a variety of other places throughout the world. Uh, its its uh, its origins were in Europe, uh, and uh, and when it, when it was finally transplanted to the United States, it had been integrated in a variety of smaller cities in the United States, uh, uh, places in in Ohio, in Colorado. Uh, and and in other uh, uh, smaller cities in Connecticut and the like, where voters in those smaller towns had begun to try again what was known as the single transferable vote option, where they get to where voters get to rank candidates. In New York City, reformers uh, appreciated the opportunities that they saw this model offering uh, them. But when they looked at it in the 19th century, they saw it as a way of limiting the suffrage as a way of curtailing diversity uh, in uh, representation. Uh, because in the 19th century, the reform movement in New York City was primarily interested in, in, in weakening immigrant voting power, in weakening what they saw as the base of support for Tammany Hall, Boss Tweed, and the like. Uh, and, and the initial proposals for the so-called good government movement and proportional representation in, in the mid in, in the mid to late 19th century were about using PR uh, to increase elite rule uh, rather than increase popular rule. Uh, for that reason, it was kind of a nativist proposal, and it didn't go anywhere at that time. Uh, but that changes fundamentally in the early in the early 20th century, and then we have a, a sort of a transition in the reform movement, where the reform movement seems to recognize that it needs to find common ground with uh, a, a, a more popular base of support, uh, and we see uh, from from the progressive movement the desire to uh, uh, I, I think find common cause with um, uh, working class uh, and 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 uh, and workers' rights movements. So we see uh, many of the good government groups that had supported. Uh, say the suffrage movement for women and and later the the League of Women Voters, these groups then find common cause with the Socialist Party, with the Communist Party, with the American Labor Party, and uh, also with African American rights groups. And they all see in proportional representation an opportunity to gain power in New York City politics. And you have this fascinating sort of nexus in this, this, this relatively brief moment in time where all of these diverse groups that had never before seen eye to eye on much of anything, they see PR as the common element where they can ally uh, 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 across their great divisions for at least a brief moment in time, see that they have some common base of support, support PR as a way for, for each of their, their own interests to come together uh, to get power in New York City against the Democratic and Republican parties. And just as you say, the Democratic and Republican parties, which had never agreed on anything in their histories, are now able to bridge their gaps and come together and say, well, we will collude and they, and they do actually collude behind closed doors to come up with campaigns where they uh, uh, strategize and, and come up with um, um, mutually beneficial political strategies to attack PR precisely because they don't want any third parties to rise up uh, that would ultimately be seen as challenging their hegemony in New York City politics. Right, right. 
Um, yeah, it's it's a it's a very interesting um, a group of, of bedfellows that uh, that line up on both sides, uh, and and the arguments that fly back and forth um, are are interesting as well because none of them none of them really jive with each other as well. Right. Um, so uh, okay, so this so this brings us uh, quickly to uh, the, the period at hand um, after you you've done talk. Uh, you've, you're done in the beginning of the book talking about uh, the run-up to this period. Uh, we're we're around the time of the Seabury investigations, um, which are so important to Fiorella LaGuardia being elected in New York and LaGuardia's long mayoralty, which is a key factor here. Um, we have this this broad reform coalition. So tell us tell us what happens from here. How does PR get established in New York? Sure, I, I think I think the depression is absolutely essential to this. So so the Great Depression happens at a moment where uh, Tammany Hall is 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 basically uh, in in a role of supreme authority in New York City. Uh, it, it it seems at the end of the 1920s that nothing can stop Tammany Hall from continuing its its role uh, as as the head of New York City government. Uh, the, the Republican Party certainly can't match the power that Tammany Hall has. Uh, Jimmy Walker seems perfectly content to do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, right? And just sort of flaunts himself around the city, and the media loves him for it, right? Yeah. So the media is not in a position where it is going to criticize Jimmy Walker, and he and he uh, 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 quite flamboyantly uh, uh, enjoys his position uh, and thumbs his nose at anyone who would dare to challenge uh, uh, his lifestyle, right? Uh, but the Great Depression, I think, serves as uh, uh, its own sort of challenge to the misrule of Tammany Hall. Uh, and, and, and I point out in a couple of sections uh, that, that the Great Depression very much reveals both at the national, the state, and, the, and especially the local level, the degree to which all of the decades of uh, malfeasance of, of Tammany Hall uh, serves to really put New Yorkers at risk, uh, and 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 the, and the depth of um, uh, misrule that had been performed by Tammany Hall for so many years, I think, is allows an opening for Seabury, uh, for Franklin Roosevelt versus at the state level, and then certainly at the national level to say this is what good government can do for you, the people of New York, right? And and uh, and now Seabury, LaGuardia. And also Franklin Roosevelt, in his own way, are able to endorse governmental reform in, in New York City uh, to a public that is desperate for some kind of change. And I, and I think the Depression is essential for that transition and the popular mindset about what government can mean. Uh, and PR is not the only change that they want, but PR becomes wrapped in that, I think, collection of reforms that happens in the early to mid-1930s. Um, and, and Roosevelt, I, I don't think I found anything where Franklin Roosevelt specifically lauds PR, but he very much endorses the overall package that PR is a part of. Uh, and he's no friend of Tammany Hall, and he sees PR... Uh, and his allies certainly see PR as being part of this reform movement that can hopefully permanently remove PR, or I'm sorry, they can hopefully permanently remove Tammany Hall from the picture. Uh, if PR can come in and set up an electoral framework that prevents Tammany candidates uh, uh, from being elected, that's all the better for Roosevelt, for LaGuardia, and all of their political allies. And, right. and that's that really feeds that uh, good government movement, that reform movement uh, in the mid 1930s. And I think that helps explain why PR and charter reform are successful in 1936. Yeah. I mean, in the eyes of the advocates of PR, this becomes the vehicle to having the kind of democracy Americans like think that they have. Right. Uh, that's, the, the parties are responsible and, and responsive to the public. That's precisely right. Um, and we have choices. That, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Yeah, and the and the extremity of the depression just uh, creates situations where uh, it's such an emergency that uh, we actually do experiment as uh, uh, the you know founding founding fathers intended. Um, so uh, so give us a little bit of the details about uh, the specifics of how the uh, how the PR system gets established. Um, 
uh, charter charter reform becomes incredibly important here in the states state conventions for um, uh, establishing this system as, as well as dislodging it, right? Absolutely. So you have a movement for charter reform, which seeks to do away with the old board of aldermen, uh, which was seen as really a do-nothing kind of legislature uh, that, that was that was depicted as really not doing uh, much in the way of producing legislation that would actually help the people of New York City. Uh, so charter reform in, in, incorporates a, a new city government, essentially, a new framework for governing the city of New York, including the creation of a new city council uh, that would hopefully be more proactive in terms of helping the people of New York City amid the Great Depression. And that new city council would be elected by proportional representation. Uh, So we have a new city council, a new uh, a system by which that council will be elected, and that system is proportional representation. Uh, and that PR system would allow for uh, uh, the ranked choice option, right, where you have uh, uh, voters able to select candidates, like I said before. But most importantly, there were provisions by which um, any candidate could be placed on a ballot. All voters needed to do, or all candidates needed to do, was get a certain number of uh, uh, signatures on their petitions. If vote, if they were able to get 2,000 names on their petitions and, and submit those uh, petitions to the Board of Elections, they were automatically on the ballot. So no longer did those candidates have to go through the party system at all. They didn't have to be designated official candidates uh, to go to get on the ballot. And this was a radical change. This was perhaps one of the most radical changes that was brought by charter reform. You no longer had to be endorsed by a party. Uh, and this is something that's still fought over today uh, when, when candidates run for office. Is do you have to go through the official party apparatus or can you run successfully as an independent? Uh, so charter reform and PR brought in the system whereby you only needed 2,000 names, uh, uh, 2,000 petition signatures to get on the ballot. And then to get elected, uh, you only needed to get uh, 75,000 votes in any particular borough. So again, you're not running against any one opponent. You're only trying to meet a minimum threshold of votes. And if you reach that minimum threshold in a particular borough, it doesn't matter what your opponent gets in terms of votes. If you get 75,000, you're automatically elected. Uh, And in some states, uh, such as, uh, I believe, uh, Michigan uh, and California, this provision caused PR to be ruled unconstitutional. Uh, and when uh, the uh, the New York Court of Appeals uh, uh, adjudicated the issue, this was the central question as to whether PR would be ruled unconstitutional or constitutional, whether that provision uh, that allowed for candidates to be elected by reaching a minimum threshold, whether that was essentially legal or illegal. And, in, and how do they how do they come to those determinations uh, with regard to the minimum threshold or with regard to whether it's constitutional? The, yeah. What are the, what in what sense would this are they determining this unconstitutional? The idea is whether a voter uh, has the ability to vote for all of the the uh, officials that will represent that particular voter. Uh, so in uh, the PR system, if if I were to be living in this in the borough of Brooklyn, uh, and um, Brooklyn under this PR system will have, uh, in, say eight or nine city council members that will represent me, I can't vote for eight or nine uh, uh, city council members, right? I I only have one vote. Uh, so uh, many state constitutions, and the Supreme Court would weigh on this later, uh, say that if there's a, essentially a one-person, one-vote requirement according to the Constitution, right. uh, and that PR violates this idea of one-person, one-vote, because I don't, I'm not able to vote for all eight or nine city council members that represent the borough of Brooklyn. Yeah, uh, but this is also a little bit hypocritical, right? Because there's all these other features at the time, precisely. in which the one vote, one person vote is concept is being flagrantly denied. Precisely, right? precisely. Still today, precisely. Yeah. So, under the former board of aldermen system, I would have been in a district where I was represented by one board of aldermen member, right? Uh, but under the new uh, uh, city council framework, I am um, I am represented by several council council members that represent the borough at large. 
Mm-hmm. And that's a critical change. And in other uh, states, PR was ruled unconstitutional. In um, in New York, uh, in New York State, uh, a couple of the local uh, courts uh, offered competing rulings. Uh, and Brooklyn, I think, ruled. I may be mixing these up. But I think Brooklyn ruled this unconstitutional, and Manhattan may have ruled it constitutional. Uh, so it went to the Court of Appeals, and the Court of Appeals concluded that it was constitutional, primarily saying that there needs to be experimentation in democracy. Uh, hmm. And it went with the idea that it's okay to experiment every once in a while uh, in the way that PR is, is experimenting. Uh, and observers at the time were concerned for fear that. Uh, uh, this could go really either way. In the 1920s, uh, some of the primary proponents for PR in New York City actually didn't want to send a test case forward because they feared that given who was on the bench at the time, they were assured that it would have been ruled unconstitutional. Uh, and, they, right. and they actually refused to sort of put a case forward uh, because they were almost certain that it would have been ruled unconstitutional, I believe, in 1922. Yeah, and judges are not nonpartisan actors. Precisely, I mean, precisely. Right, Judge Seabury, who you know is famous for these investigations into Tammany Hall, comes out very strongly for PR. Right, makes it the centerpiece of his recommendations for how to better clean up City Hall. Um, you, you know, the Tammany and the machines still have control over judicial appointments as part of their patronage powers up until the fifties. Absolutely. Absolutely. That, 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 that's precisely right. Uh, and so there's a, there's a, uh, there's a great deal of um, uh, back and forth behind the scenes over uh, uh, where to send the cases, right, and, and, and when to send the cases precisely with the realization that, that the timing is everything in, in terms of whether this is going to be judged favorably or not. Uh, mm-hmm. But the Court of Appeals rules that this is constitutional and can go forward. Uh, and these rulings happen uh, uh, in 1936 and 37, right at the critical junctures before uh, the charter reform referendum, and then right before the actual votes occur for the first uh, city council election. Right. right. Uh, right. And, and it, so, the, so this is uh, sort of leading right into uh, the moments where you have PR first utilized in 1937, and there's questions still as to whether this can even happen legally. Yeah, but and, and we've said that the depression was very important. It's also that uh, we have a, a, cat, a sort of little galaxy of, of figures here who are so popular, um, who become standard bearers, even when they're not explicitly standard bearers for PR, right? LaGuardia and FDR. I mean, the the, the vote for uh, establishing PRs goes, what, two to one, even though this tremendous uh, 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 all, all these political actors uh, against the system are are coming out very strongly uh, for it. Um, uh, even figures who you know were sort of advocates of some form of PR in the past, like Al Smith, are are you know talking against this stuff. Um, but the American Labor Party, which is essentially established to, to be the anti-Tammany party, and it is to get. LaGuardia elected to to vote for the uh, the New Deal, right? Which Tammany comes out against. Tammany, you know, comes out against their own former man um, in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, FDR in '36. Um, so when this election is taking place, with all this legality uh, still up in the air, uh, PR is seen as a vehicle still to establishing these powerful powerful figures in their agendas, right? Yeah, absolutely right. And and you have a, a moment where the 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 populace uh, is trying to have its say too, right? So when the popular uh, uh, when the popular votes occur with regard to PR, the popular votes aren't close, right? The the the, the charter referendum and, and the votes for PR in 1936 are two to one, right? So the, the, it's it's fascinating to see how much wrangling occurs between, say, the power brokers in the city and how close those negotiations are, right? And in terms of the um, the Charter Reform Commission in 1935, uh, even the votes that happen in 1938 with the uh, the state constitutional convention and how close that is. Uh, but then when the popular votes occur with the, with the charter referendum in 1936, 1938, 1940, those are all wide margins. Uh, when the public is able to have its chance to say what it wants about PR, they're, they're two to one and then more, to two, more than two to one margins in favor of the system, uh, which, which is interesting when the public finally has its say about whether it would like to have this particular approach to electing its representatives. Right, right. 
and a system that they're not familiar with, but they that, like the idea of more choice, right? That's right. Control. That's right. Yeah. Uh, and and that 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 point that you raise about whether the public has any real grasp of what it's utilizing is something that is debated throughout this ten-year period. Uh, and and the the that that gets to something uh, that um, I think people who advocated and argued against the system uh, very much concerned themselves with uh, because it, 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 was, it, it was difficult to say exactly how many people truly understood the implications of the system. Certainly people utilized the system and um, vote totals for the, the council increased versus the total vote for the Board of Aldermen, and that, that could have happened for any number of reasons, uh, but uh, the, the advocates for PR used it as justification for their side, saying that this shows that people are more engaged with uh, the city council, are more engaged with the process of democracy under this new system. At the same time, um, I, I think as you alluded to earlier, voting under PR was a bit of a wreck. In many circumstances, uh, there were there were ways in which simply having to uh, have so many hundreds of thousands of paper ballots. Uh, one was over four feet long in the case of the borough of Brooklyn in uh, 1937 because it had 99 different candidates. Um, that that borough's vote alone took about a month to count. Uh, because of all of the different transfers that had to happen. I think there were about 30 different transfers that needed to happen. That This is before calculators. It's obviously before computers. Everything needed to be done by hand. Everything needed to be rechecked again and again and again to, to certify the votes. Uh, and those delays were used as fodder by critics of the system to say that our democracy needs to be run more efficiently. Ironic <laughs> rhetoric given that these were the very same critics who had run uh, the, the ultimately quite corrupt uh, uh, version of democracy that they had operated for so many generations prior. There's, a, there's some language here I want to quote from, from your book. This is, comes from a section, uh, a section of the New City Charter, right? Uh, explain, explaining a little bit uh, how, how this system will work. And it says, if during the first sorting a ballot is found which is marked first choice for a candidate already elected, but shows no choice for an unelected candidate, it shall be given to the candidate of its first choice and its place the last previous ballot, if any, sorted to that candidate, which does show a choice for an unelected candidate, shall be taken and resorted to its next available choice as if it were then being sorted for the first time. I mean, I read that several times and tried to follow it, and it, it was dizzy. Right. Um, right. And, you know, you make the comment early on that the system was so complicated, uh, as you rightly know, this is the age before computers and all these things, calculators. Um, it depended upon the country's number one advocate, a guy named George Hallett, right, who was a mathematician. That's absolutely right. George Hallett has a PhD in mathematics from the University of Pennsylvania. He advocates the system. It seems like that's all he does. I, I've read many of his papers, and he advocates it for decades. He's, he's quite an impressive figure for how much he appreciates PR, and he views it. He views the system as ultimately the most efficient way of, uh, of, of guiding our democracy, which is fascinating, given how inefficient and messy the system was as practiced in New York City. And he recognized that. I mean, he, he wrote many times uh, in a variety of journals about how to reform his own vision of PR because he was the person who was, uh, I think, uh, uh, um, monitoring the counts in many of the boroughs. I mean, he was on the ground day after day looking over everyone's shoulder. He was looking over the canvasser's shoulders to, to make sure that they were operating the system correctly. Uh, and and he, I think he most likely wrote that paragraph that you just read. Uh, he, was, he was the person who wrote the minutia of the, the regulations uh, in New York City. Uh, and, and I've tried to, to locate more specific details about the instructions that the canvassers were given. And the best I've been able to come up with is that there's actually some pretty open allowances for randomness in the the um, in those guidelines, uh, which suggests that depending upon which election district you were in, it, it, there would be variation ultimately in the totals because just what you read doesn't uh, provide. This gets into the weeds of it, but I mean, depending upon which election district you were in, if your ballot was counted first or last, would have some would produce some variation, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and 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 there are some 
specific statistical reasons for why that was, but it all had to do with whether your if you had a one uh, and your first choice was counted, or if you had a one and you had many other second, third, or first, fourth choices, if the canvasser decided to count your one uh, and you had second, third, or fourth choices or didn't, uh, it could impact uh, uh, some of the other uh, 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 second, third, or fourth choices, right, depending yeah. upon how your vote was distributed or whether it was distributed. And how much of this is a special uh, case for New York. I mean, uh, do you have uh, how much sense do you have about the way the system is practiced in Europe and in other parts of the country, and, and how much this is sort of is is this designed this complicated nature? Is this sort of a sandbag type situation like we often have with the legislation? Sure, sure. I uh, I, I did some of my research at the uh, at at a uh, a similar organization's archives in London. Uh, and uh, at the uh, Electoral Reform Society in London, uh, and these two groups, uh, the, um, uh, the 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 the, um, the Proportional Representation League and the Proportional Representation Society, what became the Electoral uh, Reform Society in London, had frequent uh, correspondence over the decades across the Atlantic, uh, sort of participating in one another's campaigns, trading strategies back and forth over the decades. Uh, really produced some fascinating correspondence as they were trying to encourage one another to do uh, the best that they could to help ensure that PR uh, would uh, would spread both in Europe and in the United States, and I was talking with some of the um, the people that worked at the Electoral Reform Society in London, and one of whom, one of whom had just come back from Ohio because he was helping to advise a campaign in Ohio. Uh, this would have been uh, around 2004 uh, to help uh, encourage uh, STV, uh, an STV campaign in Ohio. And and I talked about how much difficulty I was having in trying to find the guidelines for what was going on in New York City. Uh, and, and, and he was utterly dismayed uh, by the kind of randomness that I was locating in how PR was practiced in New York City. Uh, and and suggested that that was really unusual, uh, that there weren't more specifics. Uh, as they say, the absence of evidence isn't necessarily evidence in and of itself, but the sense that I have is that given the overwhelming number of, of ballots that needed to be counted and the speed at which the system moved through, that, that there is a sense that there were some gaps in the process. And, and, and I think Hallett was, from the correspondence I've read from him, Hallett was trying to deal with this on the fly. It's something that he recognized was a problem, and he was trying to change it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, so this is a, a turning point in, in New York City history. And, and tell us about some of the changes that are wrought as a result of these elections. I mean, you alluded to it earlier, but I mean, this is this is the period when Adam Clayton Powell gets, comes to power, uh, Genevieve Earle. Um, uh, tell us about some of these folks and 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 what what these changes meant politically for the city. Certainly, certainly. I think uh, it, it, it's you know, as as we talked about before, it's a fascinating moment where you have. I I, I think that with regard to gender and race in particular, you have a new vision of who is able to serve in high office in New York City government, and 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 I don't think that can be underemphasized. To have folks like Adam Clayton Powell. Very soon thereafter, Ben Davis comes in and essentially takes over Adam Clayton Powell's seat. Uh, ben Davis right, is essentially right. endorsed by Adam Clayton Powell. Ben Davis comes in, who is uh, an avowed communist, uh, and 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 is elected uh, to to basically replace Adam Clayton Powell. Um, uh, and and Adam Clayton Powell and Ben Davis utilize their seats on the on the city council to advocate for reforms that had never been advocated uh, in City Hall. They're they're talking about issues like police brutality. Uh, They're talking about uh, civil rights. They're talking about integration and public housing. They're talking about uh, a variety of reforms in uh, in 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 ways that I think challenge uh, 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 very old practices in New York City, and and I and I think people of of uh, African descent in New York City had re- never really had that kind of official platform in city government from from which to uh, offer these proposals. That's not to say. That 
that the proposals were successful because for the most part they weren't at all uh, right. but but I think PR provides a mechanism by which these um, proposals can be advocated from positions of relative power and and, and, a, and a position at least at the seat of government where where previously that had been absent and I, and I think that's very interesting to consider yeah, well, especially since, I mean, Powell himself, you know, famous for the Powell Amendment. I mean, right. a, a guy who, you know, had a flamboyant career and was often absent from Congress, but, right. you know, became famous for uh, stamping and sandbagging every, uh, every piece of legislation that came across his aisle that threatened to discriminate against African-Americans by putting in an anti-discrimination rider, right? right? A right. tactic that, you know, conservatives used to use to get the Southern Democratic vote, too. That's right. Um, That's right. Uh uh, and and as historians of the civil rights movement appreciate how much New York in particular is important to the to the long arc of the movement. I mean, these are significant facts. That's that's right. And then uh, so you have you know some of the arguments with regard to Stuyvesant Town and and the and the proposed integration of Stuyvesant Town. Just as you say, very much then I think have far-reaching and national implications that connect with the, the so-called early civil rights movement uh, and, and have been used by other uh, historians to, I think, I think, begin to build that bridge to what happened, say, nationally in the 1950s uh, with, with, with regard to the emergence of that sort of national discourse about civil rights. Uh, you mentioned Genevieve Earle. Genevieve Earle uh, is is the second woman to be elected to the to the New York City Legislature. Uh, she becomes the uh, minority leader of the City Council and and is elected uh, all five times that PR uh, is utilized to elect City Council members. And she is minority leader for the majority of the time that we have PR. Uh, she advocates a variety of programs that really have their heritage in the progressive movement. I mean, she's talking about sanitation. She's talking about uh, uh, food and safety standards. She's talking about uh, protections for women. Uh, she had sort of come up uh, with the League of Women Voters. So I, I think her advocacy is very much situated in that era of progressive era reform. But nonetheless, she sees some common ground with uh, uh, far more radical members and, and, uh, of, the, of the city council. And, and she's able to ally herself at times with the Communist Party members around some of these issues, along with Stanley Isaacs uh, with regard to integration of Stuyvesant Town. So that, that, uh, that, uh, that alliance in the minority is able to, if unsuccessfully, nonetheless use their status uh, as PR elected members to advocate for uh, programs that really would not have ever seen the light of day in, a, in an official setting at this particular time in New York City. Yeah. Well, it's also important to note here that, you know, New York City was exceptional for the, the high number of uh, uh, communists that it had. I mean, the, the party never has more than 100,000 people in it, but um, it jumps from 50 to 100,000 during the late 30s. They're in this popular front era when all of a sudden, uh, you know, Thomas Jefferson and Abraham Lincoln are showing up on uh, Communist Party placards and they're saying that communism is 20th century Americanism. Uh, uh, and they're really sort of seeking to uh, use their considerable organizational power to uh, advocate for general progressive legislation. That, that's absolutely right. And we see the, sort of the, the continuation of the popular front uh, uh, strategy of, 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 uh, of activism where um, the, the Communist Party in the midst of World War II is trying to appeal broadly using some of the icons that you just described. And, and, and I think we see that in the in the election results, um, we see election results in which there are far more votes for the communist legislators than there are registered communists in New York City by far. Uh, the communists receive some of the highest vote totals uh, in the PR elections among any candidates. Uh, ben Davis in particular receives consistently uh, some of the highest totals uh, amongst all of the candidates. Uh, and and I think it's, it's with uh, Davis and Peter Caccione, another uh, communist representative, it's with their elections to the to the council that we see a very important turn against the system, uh, where anti-communism uh, is then used as uh, sort of the, the bludgeoning device uh, that very quickly and very 
powerfully uh, it, uh, turns the rhetorical debate against PR uh, into something where uh, PR is a stand-in for the Soviet Union, uh, for radicalism, at times for fascism and, and Hitlerism uh, uh, from the early 1940s uh, through the early Cold War. Uh, and, and, I, and I think uh, opponents of PR are able to uh, sort of center their attention on PR uh, and uh, the, the communist representatives that are elected by the system in such a consistent way that that really sort of colors the popular understanding of PR uh, for, for most of the early 1940s. Yeah, I mean, New York City is exceptional too because it has a you know all those refugees from communist uh, Russia. It has uh, refugees from fascist Europe. Um, so, so some of these uh, rhetorical debates uh, uh, about uh, PR being a vehicle to to totalitarianism are powerful, right? Because there's there's a sort of sense of fear of democracy. Uh, at work here, some of this language, right? That, that's absolutely right. And uh, some of the images that I that I found that I wasn't able to put in the book are are produced in the languages of a variety of the populations that you just described, coming from uh, throughout Europe. Uh, so 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 those, those pamphlets, some of which are included, but in English in the book, are are in, incorporated in a variety of, of various European languages, specifically to appeal to those immigrant groups coming over during the course of World War II. Uh, to, 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 to play upon their, their memories of uh, the, the strife in Europe uh, and to connect those memories uh, and, and their visceral concerns about what's happened in Europe and their uh, anxieties about what the transition process is going to be like in New York City to how they should think about proportional representation and how they should vote uh, with regard to the future of proportional representation. And the allies of proportional representation do the very same thing uh, and, and suggest that they need to see, uh, these immigrants should see proportional representation as a way for them to protect their own interests now that they've arrived in New York City. Uh, and and, 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 and uh, allies of PR present uh, the system as a way for, for these new Americans to establish themselves. Uh, and to gain representation, whereas otherwise they won't be able to. Uh, so again, this, the starkness of the differences in how the system is presented uh, continues on through the end of the war. Yeah, and, and, and there's, uh, there's as, as ever, uh, a state in America, there's a you know, state-urban uh, conflict, right? Because the state is essentially um, denying the city constantly home rule um, in a variety of ways, and PR becomes a model that other cities in New York start contemplating adopting, right? And so the state legislature is, is freaking out because um, this this alters the, the balance of power, right? I mean, the, the, where the legislature was able to bilk uh, the city essentially for all of the economic wealth that it produced um, from its sort of unaccountable place in Albany. Um, and PR just sort of upsets this uh, two-party monopoly that we have. That's absolutely right. And and the um, the proponents of PR in New York City, like George Hallett, they go to the state government, they go to Albany, and they propose expanding PR to the state legislature, uh, which, as you would imagine, is the last thing that Albany would want to do. Albany is still very much controlled by by upstate uh, Republicans for the most part, uh, and, and given the, the lack of proportional representation that, that is used to elect the state legislature uh, and 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 that um, sort of upstate alliance uh, 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 sir, uh, desires to quash any attempt at expanding PR statewide, and and they successfully prevent that. And there are other right. smaller communities like New Rochelle and others that that try to get PR uh, referendum on their ballots, but those are prevented as well uh, for, for right. precisely the same reason. Yeah, up until the Warren Court, right? We don't have uh, we don't have laws that are striking down this this rurally tilted uh, uh, system that that dramatically overinflates small towns and suburban areas to give Republicans control of the Northeast, where you would think that they would dominate all the legislatures, right? Exactly. That's exactly right. Yeah. Um, so, uh, why don't you talk a little bit about this, uh, the little Red Scare, and uh, the uh, and bring us towards the end of uh, this system? Talk about how the Republicans turn against PR and and um, how all this uh, ends up. 
Sure, sure. So um, the, the Republican Party, ironically enough, gains representation under PR. Uh, the, the Republicans win proportionally more seats uh, in the city council through PR than they had under the old electoral system, the district-based electoral system for the Board of Aldermen. Uh, but the Republican Party moves fairly quickly against PR uh, because I, it seems to be that they're more concerned about the rising tide of third parties parties that are elected under the system. Uh, so the Republican Party uh, uh, seems to be concerned about um, uh, having socialists, American Labor Party members, liberal party members, communists elected, uh, and, and allies itself with the Democratic Party precisely because it wants to essentially be a second party without any third party option. Uh, so the Republican Party and the Democratic Party uh, ally against all of the other options uh, and focuses in the midst of the election of the, the two communists, Cachione and Davis, uh, to red bait the system, uh, which they do consistently after the election of uh, Peter Cachione first in 1941, and then the election of Cachione and Davis in both 1943 and 1945. Uh, so during World War II, you have multiple elections in New York City in which communists are elected. Uh, and, and these communists aren't elected uh, undercover. They run as communist party members. Uh, and, 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 and I think this is just fascinating for how we understand both the World War II era and how we understand democracy. Moreover, after World War II is over in November 1945, during what people usually describe as the early Cold War, the communists win again. Uh, yeah, yeah. We have we have Davis uh, uh, and Cachione winning again in uh, November 1945, uh, and it's uh, this would have otherwise been a moment for the repeal movement to to strike, uh, but. The leaders of the repeal movement, including Parks Commissioner Robert Moses, uh, feared uh, that the war uh, and the uh, basically the rising tide of patriotism that occurred uh, in the immediate aftermath of the victory in the war uh, would have uh, not been the right time to attack PR. Uh, they they were concerned that uh, doing anything when Roosevelt had been alive during the war, uh, when when LaGuardia was still popular during the war would have simply brought another defeat. Uh, PR referenda were victorious in 1938 and 1940. Uh, so the uh, critics of PR decided to wait, uh, and they decided to wait all the way until 1947 uh, uh, during a, a congressional off year uh, so that they could wait until after the war by a couple of years uh, so that they could wait uh, until uh, LaGuardia uh, was basically uh, uh, out of the picture so that they could wait until after uh, President Roosevelt's death. Uh, and this was all time to coincide with what they viewed to be the smallest possible voter turnout and voter interest in the election. Right. And that's when the next uh, repeal effort happened. Uh, and the repeal was then uh, time to coincide <clears throat> excuse me, was time to coincide with the wave of anti-communist sentiment that was occurring in 1947, when you have the Truman Doctrine uh, amongst the wave of anti-communist propaganda that is spreading nationwide. And it's in that context uh, that you have the defeat of proportional representation in New York City uh, by a two-to-one margin in a nearly uh, reverse of the vote totals that you had back in 1936. Right, right. Right. And that is the, the end of proportional representation. Uh, in the next uh, city council elections that you have a few years later, uh, you have the removal of all but one uh, of the uh, uh, PR allies uh, uh, from the previous council. Uh, so you go from having a relatively balanced council under PR uh, to almost an exclusively uh, democratic council without PR. Uh, despite the fact that the Democratic Party is still only able to muster a little over half of the vote. Uh, so the actual vote totals for the Democratic Party remain about the same. The Democratic Party gets a little over 50% of the vote, but the Democratic Party is able to hold, uh, uh, I believe, around 90% of the seats. Uh, but but uh, in terms of district-based allocation of representation, the Democratic Party holds nearly all of the seats in the city council. 
Yeah, I mean, much of the story reads uh, like this struggle between politicians who are conspiratorially denying Americans the vote and actors who are constantly sort of shifting positions a little bit on PR, depending upon what the sort of short-term result has been, right? Right. So one-time friends become enemies because they don't like the way the last election went. Right. Um, there's a sort of faithlessness with uh, allowing democracy to sort of flower and, and go the wrong, go, you know, don't go, to not go the way we want to sometimes. Sure, sure. And you, so you have, at the party level, you have the Democratic Party, which gets, gets what it wants. It's able to maintain power for, for decades uh, as, as, as the, uh, the, the sort of uh, primary hegemon in New York City. The Republican Party I guess gets what it wants, right? It is the second party, although it it is it has very little representation in the city council. And then we think about some of the individuals. Robert Moses, who is parks commissioner, parks commissioner, he had many of his proposals uh, um, opposed quite vociferously by those. Um, PR allies at the city council level. So, his, you know, Stuyvesant Town was one of his babies. It was one of his uh, um, uh, uh, star proposals, right? And star star plans. Uh, he he had been, uh, uh, you know, he had been picked at and picked at by folks like Ben Davis and Stanley Isaacs and Adam Clayton Powell. And now he has been able to remove the system that facilitated his opponent's election. And after they're removed and that system's removed, he has almost free reign over the development projects that he has long sought. And he will continue in his uh, uh, sort of mini kingdom uh, for decades. Right. I mean, he has, what, 12 positions at one exactly, point? Exactly. Public and private boroughs. He's independent financing. He's unaccountable to any administration. Um, that, that's absolutely right. Genevieve Earl uh, resigns after PR is is removed because she understands that she basically has no future uh, in the in the new electoral system, and we don't see the election of a new uh, female candidate to the city council until the mid 1960s. It's not until 1965 that we get a, a, a new woman elected to the city council. Uh, so it's, it, it, it's again, a, a fascinating transition in so many different ways uh, from the kind of diversity and representation and policymaking that we had in uh, the PR era of the 1930s and 40s to what comes in its aftermath. So is this, is this the sort of emasculation of the city council? The, the city council returns to sort of being a... You know, you you make the point that that with with PR for the first time, there's debate you know, on city councils, right? WNYC is carrying live these broadcasts of, of debate, which which supremely upsets all the senior members because they're used to having this place be a rubber stamp body, right? That's right. That's right. And and it and it certainly seems that we then transition into uh, the, the the more staid era of the, the the late 40s and then in the 50s uh, before we have, I think, the return to uh, more activist agendas, frankly, in the 1960s, which are then associated with many of the movements that, 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 that folks are probably more familiar with, right, where, right. where, 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 where challenges return to, to, I think, that, that order uh, um, offered by, by uh, the, the Democratic and Republican parties, right? And, and, but, but, it, but it takes that, that kind of challenge that comes uh, in, in the late 50s and early 60s before that, before that happens. So, can you, your book is about New York. What's the fate of this? For I mean, you made the illusion earlier on that this is not a system that is uh, just some sort of quaint anachronism. It's still practiced in many parts of the world. Um, what's the fate for this system uh, in other parts of the country and uh, today, and in Europe and other places? Uh, this this system. Uh not necessarily the single transferable vote, but variations of proportional representation are, are really the most popular model of democracy in, in parliamentary governments throughout the world. Uh, the, the, the sense that representation should be uh, uh, provided proportionally to how people vote really is the guiding framework for democratic governments. Right. And, and the United States is kind of the outlier uh, in, 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 that, in its vision of democracy, if, if you will. Uh, 
and, right. and certainly the, we can have a whole different conversation about why the why the why the United States is the outlier in that regard with with uh, with its history of the the two party framework. Um, but I, I think what I found interesting about how uh, how PR and and the single transferable vote has existed in its own limited way in the United States was the, the way in which there have been communities that have attempted to incorporate this system at the local level, the, and 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 a few continue. Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, is is perhaps the most famous example of a city that has, I think, for a very long time, incorporated the single transferable vote. Uh, New York, uh, the New York um, uh, City School Board uh, elections uh, have utilized the single transferable vote. Uh, and uh, at the state level and at the local level, uh, there are a variety of um, smaller offices, more minor offices, that continue to use the single transferable vote. Usually you will find these in offices where voters are asked to vote for a variety of different positions at once, usually for, say, judgeships, right? Uh, so. For here in uh, North Carolina, where we have uh, multiple judges that are elected at the same time, STV will be used. Um, I think the most famous example of this that, that um, you might not know of is that this is how the Academy Awards select uh, the best picture. Uh, currently, where uh, the, the Academy voters uh, have a pool of Best Picture nominees, and then STV is essentially used, or a modified version of it is used, um, and 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 it's from that larger pool that the uh, the primary uh, Best Film is now selected. Uh, and this was a change that was made a, a few years ago now, um, and uh, but I, I think that there are more and more communities that are trying to incorporate STV. I think uh, a version that is um, becoming increasingly popular in places uh, like like the Bay Area of California is called instant runoff uh, of voting. Right, which allows for uh, the possibility of uh, having, say, a, a third candidate, if not a greater variety of candidate, but candidates, but at least a third candidate uh, to provide uh, for more diversity uh, in the, in the election process. Uh, so, I, and I think that's what what people have been struggling to bring into uh, at least the United States version of democracy. Yeah. Well, I, I'm amused. I was amused by all these quotes in here from opponents of PR who, who tried to convert the two-party system, which was not, you know, I mean, not intended at all by the by the founders. I mean, you read the Federalist Papers, and it's predicting that there's not going to be any parties in America. And then, what? It's ten days after George Washington's election that the the Democratic Party gets started. Um, uh, <laughs> but you have these people who try to equate the two-party system, this monopoly, uh, this very undemocratic thing, uh, into a form of patriotism, right? right. Uh, you know, I believe in the two-party system as if, as if this was some sort of like Americanism um, uh, that was intended and, and is democratic. And um, what, I, what I think is interesting about uh, the book um, and I try to, uh, you know, I, as I said before, I do this in my own work too. Uh, you make the point in the introduction that we typically, historiographically, think about the rise of American democracy, and that means typically the expansion of the franchise, when it's really how democracy is structured that's, that's just as important as who gets the right to vote. Right. Um, I mean, so America is this outlier in that we have these these um, these systems that are not followed by most of the democracies in the world, and and PR and these other things sort of feed into that. So it's a really interesting topic. Mm -hmm. and, um, yeah, and and just one one last thing, which is that when the United States in its in its role in international affairs has served to try to structure and restructure democratic systems, what it views as democratic systems throughout the world, it has incorporated proportional representation yes, in those I systems, know, yeah, right? Yeah, and this is one yeah. of the points I make in the introduction, right? So then in its occupation of Iraq, in, in the restructuring right. of, of uh, governments after World War II, it has incorporated 
uh, proportional representation systems, precisely because it viewed proportionality and representation as something useful, at, at least in terms of its foreign policy agenda in, in those various situations, right? And, and it viewed proportionality and representation as fundamental to the project of democracy, right? And that, that, right. Was, that was something that was absolutely essential to the goals of, 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 of those various occupations, which is different than how uh, the project of democracy is so often understood within the borders of the United States. Right, right. Well, it's a, it's a great book. Um, thank you so much for coming to talk to us today. Um, maybe you could take us out by talking about what you're working on now. Absolutely. Uh, my current project is situated in the same chronological time period, but I, I, I've tried to move very far away from electoral politics, uh, uh, and I'm, I'm looking at uh, the history of uh, atomic science and nuclear technology during uh, the early decades of the 20th century. Uh, the tentative title is Atomic Dreams, uh, Creating a Nuclear World in the Decades Before the Cold War. And uh, I'm trying to find the intersections of... Uh, art, uh, science, culture, and commerce in, uh, in the fashioning of an atomic world uh, in the run-up to nuclear technology during the Cold War. And I'm, I'm very curious to see how this develops. So am I. So am I. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, and uh, it's a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. All right. Bye, Dan. <laughs>